Hello and welcome to Season 5 of Captain's Corner. We'd like to take a moment to let you know how grateful we are to you, our listeners, for making this podcast such a success. We believe that Season 5 will be our best yet. We have a great lineup of speakers for you to enjoy. So we ask that you share this on your social media, with your friends and family, and of course, give us a like and leave a review. Thank you. We hope you guys enjoy the season. Today on the podcast, we have Major Dr. Marion Platt III, the Area Commander for the Salvation Army in Memphis. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor for Season 5 of Captain's Corner. PFS Financial uses biblical principles to guide you in growing and stewarding your wealth, but more importantly, PFS will guide you in fulfilling your search for significance and help you establish a legacy that will embody your passions. For more information, visit pfsfinancialfirm.com. Well, welcome to Captain's Corner. Captain Andy Miller coming to you from Tampa, Florida. And we are so excited today to have on Captain's Corner, Major, oh, I almost said Major, uh, Major Dr. <laughs> Marion Platt III. And he and I share a lot in common. We're Salvation Army officers. We're thirds. Um, we are, I'm not a major, but I do have the doctor part and I appreciate, uh, Marion, you bringing the doctor into style for the Salvation Army Southern Territory. <laughs> Welcome to Captain's Corner. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you. I appreciate it. Let's just hit on that. You and I were just having a conversation before we went on the air and we were try- trying to figure out like, well, should I use the doctor piece? And like I said, I, I appreciate you bringing up. I kind of feel like internally in the Salvation Army, it doesn't always work to my favor to use the the doctor, the earned doctor title. Um, but maybe now there's a few other people who are coming along that it, it is being used. You, you and I are having just a little conversation about that. What do you think about using the the, the title doctor? Well, I think, you know, if, if there are instances where having, you know, post-nominal uh, letters behind someone's name or titles other than uh, that which is given to us by the Salvation Army, if that creates division right. within um, the Salvation Army, then we need to be just very careful about the way that we apply it. Right, right. But... On the other hand, if it can create some momentum for the kingdom in our local appointment, right? Um, if if people see, okay, well, this person is not just someone that the Salvation Army um, put into this position because they value him, but this is a person that uh, has credentials, right, um, in their area of study and in the practice of their craft then if that will help build the kingdom and to build the army and a local community, uh, I would say that that's definitely the time to use it. And so using discretion um, to make sure that we are uh, building and not causing confusion or division amongst our peers is, I, th- I think that's, that's what we have to keep in mind. We don't want to make other people feel less than. Right, right, right. Um, be- because they haven't pursued this, you know, um, terminal degree. That, that's not the point um, at all. And so I think, really, we, we just have to use a lot of discretion right. 
in the way in the way that we use those terms. Right, and you know, some pe- some people haven't just had those similar opportunities. The the army itself has provided some of those, so that, that that's a beautiful thing. I, I for a while I had um, in on my right inside pocket of my tunic and my left inside pocket I had a card that had just Captain Andy Miller, and then the left side I had Captain Doctor Andy Miller. And I but generally what I found myself doing is reaching into the doctor side when I was in the community, and it would it would open up doors. And I feel like that's a that's a piece of education beyond the formative experience of bringing you to a place of being able to engage ideas and um, develop yourself as a person. It does represent something to certain people. When, when it matters, it matters. And I think that that's a similar direction we're going to go in our conversation today about race. Um, now, I, I was cautious to even want to make sure that you were good at this time, particularly we're just a week removed from the killing of our uh, Ahmed Arbery, and um, you know, rather we, you would want to talk about this at, at this point. And I'm really thankful to have you in this conversation, particularly like you just hosted a, a conversation that was viewed you know, thousands of times um, on your own Facebook page, and it's a really helpful conversation. Yeah. So um, I'm going to drop back to the doctor thing just for a second because because it ends yeah. up being like um like when I said when it matters it matters, and um, I think that that's something that's involved with the racial discussion as well um but when we get to this when the the educational side um i've noticed that in the black church tradition um often the people will be identified with their full like academic credentials including their ecclesial credentials and i always love the ecclesial credentials come first reverend doctor um captain doctor um you want to address that a little bit yeah, sure. So one of the one of the things that uh, came out in a in a paper that I, I wrote recently, and I believe that we'll be yes. we'll be taking a look at that here here in a few. But in in African American culture, the achievement of higher education is one of the most important displays yes. of um, mobility. Mm-hmm and utility and achievement and and so you know to for a person of color to be able to you know achieve um a title in the church is important um you know bishop uh, apostle reverend yeah. pastor deacon those are all important titles but also to show that this person has more than just a shout and a testimony hmm. is important, but, but they have um, sought after um, deeper levels of education. Um, that means a lot mm-hmm. in the black community. And that's, that's why um, when someone were to, if someone were to look at what the, what, what the black community values, um, education is among one of the tops. And, right. and uh, you know, and you see that if you've ever if you've ever been to a high school or college graduation that mm-hmm. is populated largely by people of color, the celebration may feel something like Mardi Gras. I mean, mm-hmm. it is yeah, sure. it is huge, and that's and that's not to take away from any other culture's uh, graduation. But there is a spirit of celebration and uh, yelling and cheering because of the achievement of, you know, these these academic honors. Right. You know, to graduate from high school is huge. Yeah. 
in the black community, in any community, especially those in, in, inflicted with uh, or by inflicted by poverty. Right. Right. But but in the black community, because um, for for so many centuries, black people were told that uh, they should not and could not be in possession of literature. Right. And if they were caught with it, um, they would be subject to the whip, mm. subject to being fo- uh, sold further south. Mm. Um, and and that kind of mindset persists. To this day, because very often, if a if a black person is um, astute, erudite, and in, in their um, academic pursuits, they might be referred to as uh, uppity. Mm, mm-hmm. you know, who, and 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 so, um, and so, yeah, the the achievement of education in in the black community has long been viewed as important. And yeah, and 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 so, yeah, uh, within within the church and beyond, right. Well, I'm glad that you, and I know that your wife too has a has a doctorate as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. anyways, it's a it's a blessing that you bring. Now, I've, I've totally jumped into our conversation, and I really want to come back. I think we will to the subject of of uh, even just acknowledging that there is such a thing as the the black church. Now, Marion, help me here. If I if I use language that isn't appropriate or you would like rather me say something different, if you rather me say African American or black, would you t- would you tell me? If I have, if I can uh, use better language. Yeah, and let, if if you would um, if you would allow me to just kind of say this now yeah. one one of the things that I that I often say before I'm having a conversation about race is I ask people if they would lower their offensometer a little bit Amen. because <laughs> having having these kinds of conversations requires a lot of grace, right? All right? And um, there, there may be times when I refer to, um, you know, groups of people in generality, um, you know, and so I, I think it would be helpful if we agree to use some of those terms, um, white and black. And whenever, whenever we need to um, kind of double click on those terms and explain what we mean, it, it would be great if we would just take a moment to do that, but yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm fine with you using um, black or African-American because what's, what's interesting w- within the black community is that there's so many variations of um, black identity. So right. for instance, my wife is from the Virgin Islands, Right, right. And so she's, she's classified really as West Indian. Right, right. Um, and but people will see her and refer to her as African American, right. which you know, de- depending on how you're looking at the situation, might not be correct. Right. Whereas, I have a close friend um, who is uh, South African, but she is blonde hair, blue eyes. Right. And she very often, with tongue in cheek, refers to herself as African. American, right? She is <laughs> just, yeah. just to start the conversation, and right. so in 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 this context, uh, you and me as friends, and hopefully uh, your listeners who are full of grace would uh, would understand that uh, in in this conversation, just for clarity, I am fine with using uh, terms like black and white in in kind of right. binary uh, terms, and if ever we need to discuss that. Yeah. Let's, let's just, you know, pause and open that up. Is that okay yeah, with you? Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Mary. I appreciate you've given that clarity. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and let, let me just get in. The, I didn't. I didn't say where you. I got stuck on my second word. Major doctor. I didn't even get beyond my second word. So um, Marion serves right now as the area commander. With he and his wife, um, both both serve as area commanders for the Salvation Army in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and Marion, I would just love. You know, some. I maybe I'm assuming too much of my listeners, and I know I'll have a variety of listeners who don't know you. Um, you're a very yeah. well-known person within the Salvation Army world, but that's uh, we have folks yeah. who listen here in Tampa and all over the world, for that matter, who might not. So just give me a, a oh. short, like, bullet point version of your testimony and who you are so people can get that in their mind before we get into your paper. Yeah, sure. I think one of one of the things that if if your listeners uh, do not know me or have never seen a, a picture of me, um, it might be helpful for them to know that I am a man of mixed heritage. Right. My um, my mother um, was or is white, and she is from um, Charleston, South Carolina, and my father was black, and he is from Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and they were so young when they had me that both of my grandparents, uh, both sets of my grandparents kind of traded uh, little Marion off. That's my name in my family. Okay. And uh, my, my weekends, my, the earliest weekends of my life, I remember um, being in the Southern Baptist Church on uh, weekend number one, and then in the Missionary Baptist Church in weekend number two. Hmm. And Though they are both Baptist, the expressions of that denomination, whether Southern Baptist or Missionary Baptist, are very different. Right. And so from an early age, I got exposed to the differences between um, churches where white people attend and churches where black people attend. Right. And that was, uh, you know, and so before I even knew what I was witnessing, I was um, baptized, if you will, yeah. into... Um, two different cultures. And that has been the story of my life. Wow. Yeah. So being from Charleston, South Carolina also made me a big fan of history. I couldn't escape it. Right. Charleston is uh, the uh, birthplace of secession, Mm -hmm. uh, going back to the Civil War, 1861. Um, And so history has been a very important part of my life. And so where, where, American history, black history, um, kind of joined together is, is kind of where my mind is. Um, so I graduated high school, joined the U.S. Army and mm. served in the 10th Mountain Division, um, got, out of, got out of the Army. And uh, during that time, I was, I was really able to recommit my life to Jesus. Okay. Many, many things happened while I was serving in the military that caused me um, to completely run away from God. But you know, I was I was in a combat arms platoon, and mm. I had this uh, this sergeant who came in who just had a witness that stood out. He was really a light uh, that was shining in our battalion. Wow! He was very gracious and and um, encouraging and helpful to a lot of us young Joes, yeah. as uh, soldiers are often referred yeah, to. Yeah, sure. And um, you know, when when my life came crashing down and substance abuse took over. Uh, he was so gracious with me. And, um, after a period of maybe two years, I ended up just visiting his church. Okay. And there I found in that church, a, a very diverse, uh, 
a group of believers. I mean, hmm. it, it was the kingdom because the military community is very diverse. Right, um, right. Wherever a military installation is, you will find people from every continent on earth who all dress the same. Hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so um, the outgrowth of a faith community out of a military community was just, it was just like that, very diverse. And um, these people welcomed me so beautifully. Mm. I, mean, they, I am still in touch with most of them because my story would have been drastically different if I did not walk into um, the City of Refuge Christian Church in northern New York. Wow. And so it was there that I was, uh, I was discipled and yeah. uh, had my first experiences of direct ministry. And it was about that time that the Lord started to put on my heart uh, the Salvation Army, which was a place that I hung out as a kid and looked hmm. forward to going to camp and hmm. every summer and all of that. And uh, I knew that he had placed a call on my heart um, to Salvation Army ministry. And so wow. I fast forward a couple of years, um, married my wife, and we began to become active in the Salvation Army in the Charleston Corps. Right. I had returned home by this time. And uh, 2002, August 2002, we entered training uh, with the Bridge Builder session. Yeah. And uh, since then, uh, after being commissioned, I served in Atlanta, Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, Tampa, Florida, All as right. a divisional youth secretary. Um, and back to Atlanta, and now I'm out in Memphis, Tennessee, and um, in, enjoying the opportunity. Uh, to make a difference in the world because of this incredible mission that we have inherited from yes. our forebears to yes. preach the gospel and to meet human needs in his name without discrimination. So um, that's what really drives me. Yeah. Um, th- this, this, this path of uh, service and discipleship that the Lord has called me into and the way that that expresses itself for building the kingdom and uh, making a difference in entire communities yes so well yeah. i wish we could get maybe maybe we will too get more into that like into the vision of the salvation army and how that that's actualized i came in i came in contact with you i don't think we spoke um back in august of 2002 um I, abby and i had just been married on may 25th of that year and then we went immediately to Ooh. lead a beach ministry team in myrtle beach and so we were called upon to help uh provide the music for that occasion. Um, mm-hmm. You might mm-hmm. remember your session mm-hmm. mate, Christy Kepley. Um, so she, I do. Yeah, so yep. she was a part of the, our deep beach ministry team. And so, uh, yeah. but I remember at that time, like it was just a busy enough day. I wasn't able to get around and meet the candidates. Um, but I remember thinking, I think I'm going to come back in touch with that couple at some point and just seeing <laughs> and, and seeing you and Everett at that point, you know, who, who would yeah. could have seen where all God would take you. And, and we just were so thankful for the way that God's led your life through these various appointments has given you distinct opportunities of influence and and influence in people's lives and in communities and that's kind of interesting like we're going to maybe tend toward the internal Salvation Army side here but I think there's a lot that we can draw from this discussion so even if you're kind of in the business community here in Tampa I imagine that you're in a church or an organization that will deal with similar 
uh, concerns, particularly as it relates to race, but even how our organizations function. And that's Marion's specialty academically is um, kind of is a master's and a doctorate in organizational leadership. So I think he gives us a unique perspective on this based upon even the heritage that he just described there. But Marion, you had a um, uh, opportunity to present a paper in the eastern territory of the Salvation Army, so the, where our territorial headquarters is in the New York City area, Suffern, New York. Right. Um, and it's it, you were asked specifically to discuss the matters of race in the Salvation Army. So the title is really interesting. The title of your paper, which um, is now available in an audio form on um, Rick Rick Munn's podcast. So I think it's Monday mornings. Is that what it's called? M-U-N-N-D-A-Y? Yeah, that's correct. So yep. you can just Google that to find the audio version <laughs> of Marion's talk. And it's great. It's also been published in Word Indeed, which is a Salvation Army's theological journal um, that's edited by Jonathan Raymond and Roger Green. Um, so it, and I'm glad that this paper, and I was privileged to be able to review it with you and think through it before it was presented. Um, and so yeah. I was, I'm just glad that it's more public now, but it's called Hallelujah yeah. in the Hush Harbor, examining yeah. the experiences of black Salvation Army officers in the United States. I love the title, and I love the title before I even knew what a Hush Harbor was in reading your paper, <laughs> <laughs> but I just love I mean, you, your uh, the alliteration is beautiful. It rolls off the tongue, but hallelujah, <laughs> some of you might not know, is an important word in the Salvation Army's tradition. It's you know one of those words right. that doesn't need to be translated. It means praise the Lord, obviously, but there's a the, the Salvation Army is a, sometimes even called a ha, the Hallelujah Army, and so you right. see this kind of salvationist emphasis there, but also the the Hush Harbor. And Marion, I would maybe just as a way to get into this discussion about this paper, um, could you tell us what what Hush Harbors were and are? Um, that might be a good way yeah. for us to get started. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that for that opportunity. You know, so a Hush Harbor or a Brush Arbor, okay, were these little sanctuaries of worship um, out on the boundaries of plantations where Africans were enslaved in the southern United States. Um, they, and and these, these are the places where secretly um, the enslaved would combine, combine their African traditions with their newly adopted Christian faith. And so um, the beating of drums, the call and response worship, mm-hmm. um, all of these uh, kinds of worship that actually can be seen in just about any African-American congregation today. Um, this was really the brush arbors or the hush arbors w- was where it was the places where um, the African-American Christian tradition was born. And so, um, yeah, the hush harbors were probably the precursor to the black church in America today. Wow. And there's a sense yeah. too that 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 word that, that that term has migrated to even how black people talk about um, their challenges even today. Is that the, is that true, or am I making that up? Um, I don't I don't know that you're making it up, but I think that I think that there is um, a sense in which the African American experience is 
so difficult to talk about in mixed company because right. it, 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 it is so easily misunderstood um, in, in a culture where um, whiteness is considered the default, mm. right? And so um, the, there, there's, a, there's a great difficulty in being able to discuss freely and openly the issues that uh, black people face every day that um, might not be readily understood mm-hmm, by mm-hmm. Uh, people of other cultures or not even accepted. Right. Um, but having a basis of understanding for the black experience and in particular um, for the black Christian experience is um, I, I think that there's a there's a case to be made for whether or not hush harbors uh, exist today, right? Right. <laughs> Rather unofficially, but definitely. Yeah. Sure. There's just un- unofficial. Like even like so, you and I we were just talking about um, having terminal degrees. So if that's the case, if we are you, you and I get together and nobody else is around, we're like, yeah, you know, I can't really use a doctor. Well, and you're like, we we have a little moment. We don't have to say what's all involved, but we we have that commonality. Yep. Well, same thing true with with people with different colors of skin. Then like there's shared experience that. I'm sure when you get into a certain environment where it's where there's some understood presuppositions that allows you to have a deeper conversation in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it really has to do with identity, right? And um, to have your identity affirmed um, by other people who share in that identity and even sometimes people who don't is an important part of. Uh, the human experience. I mean, it's, it is the reason that um, the Apostle Paul told believers, forsake not the assembling of yourselves, right. because there's, there's an identity that we share as followers of Jesus that needs to be renewed and invigorated by fellowship with other people um, for whom we do not, or to whom we do not need to describe our experience, but who get it. Yes. All at once. And yes. So, um, yeah. So, so yeah. Those um, those affinity groups, I think, uh, is probably a better term for it. But but having those affinity groups is is meaningful, right? Uh, for folks, especially if those affinity groups are not um, harmful uh, to other people in thought, word, or deed. Well, yeah. Oh, man, I want to go there, but because, I want to get back to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to say that because there are affinity groups. Yeah, sure. Uh, whose whole purpose is to hurt. Amen. I mean, amen. Harm I agree. <laughs> other people in thought, word or deed. And so um, when when we're talking, when we're talking about, you know, hush harbors and affinity right. groups, I think within the context of, um, you know, the gospel, the way of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Um, those those affinity groups should be gathered around um, the notion of edification of the church and building of the kingdom and of one another. And so I, I think that's probably an important part, an important thing to insert into this conversation. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to hear. I'm glad for that distinction. Um, 
one of the things you do too in your paper is you kind of walk us through a bit. I mean, it's not like it's it's one paper. It's not a, a kind of a master's thesis. It's I'm not sure how many pages where we have twenty pages or so, and so it's not an a exhaustive history of race in the Salvation right. Army, but it is a highlighted well, and you talk um. You, you, I mean, some people like, particularly we get to uh, February and Black History Month, like you'll see pictures probably posted by the Salvation Army on uh, national, um, you know, national sites of a letter from Booker T. Washington to Salvation Army leadership, yeah. pictures with William Booth, yeah. and there is there is a a, a favorable history towards um, racial justice in the um toward the in the beginning of the salvation army and i, I think to, to a certain degree throughout of course there's challenges that you and i will get to as well um but you want to sure. walk us through a little bit of that like what what the salvation army's history is and dealing with relation racial relations yeah so that is that is something you know since i was a cadet i always had a, an interest in in this and so i would spend a lot of time in in the uh the Library of the Salvation Army, Evangelion Booth College, and also in the Southern Historical Center, because I think this immediately came out of my interest in the activity of the Salvation Army during the American Civil Rights Movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I just I, I wanted to know um, how active and how overtly anti-racist the Salvation Army was in those days, mm-hmm. and it helped to go further back, you know, it's, it's meaningful that, uh, to me, that the Salvation Army was uh, founded essentially in 1865. And so for me, as someone who my entire life has studied and reflected on um, the yeah. impact of the American Civil War, right? Um, 1865 stands out in my mind. But sure. then uh, the Army arrived on the shores of uh, the United States in 1880, which was during, you know, some can debate whether or not it was during the, the period of uh, Reconstruction. Right, the right. reason I say that, it was it was uh, three years after the Compromise of 1877, um, where federal troops were withdrawn from the American South, leaving um, black people subject uh, to local government. Um, and to uh, state laws and uh, to acts of terrorism. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the fact that the Salvation Army arrived in the United States at that moment when, um, you know, this was, this was the period in which um, black people in the South in particular uh, were subject to lynching, um, and to terrorism by mm-hmm. organizations like the Ku Klux Klan and all of that. Um, what I love about the Army is that in those days, um, the Army was was very active in anti-racist rhetoric and behavior. And mm-hmm. there and and there is um, documentation to prove that because the Army, um, way before it was cool, right. Um, was very careful about making sure that their literature reflected their position on these social issues. And so um, going back into the mid-1880s with the War Cry publication, you you can very easily find um, 
information that, that alludes to the Army's intolerance of racism in all its forms. And in addition to that, you know, the fact that uh, George Scott Railton, who was the missionary, so to speak, mm-hmm. who brought the Salvation Army to the, to the United States, um, pointed out that the Salvation Army should be among those organizations and people of the church who would dismantle the wall of separation between black people and white people. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this is historical documentation, and it makes me very proud to be a Salvationist because of that history, because right. this is at a time when no other church was as vocal as the Salvation Army. Yeah, we were very public in that that time, and that's highlighted particularly the work in New York with George Scott Railton in Diane Winston's Red Hot and Righteous, her book, her doctoral oh, yeah. dissertation from at Harvard in the mid-90s. Um, and one interesting thing that happens in this period, though, is that the Salvation Army um, is a part, and this is often missed, and it's often missed particularly with people outside of the American experience of the Salvation Army. But internationally, we were connected to the wider Wesleyan holiness movement. And you highlight this in your paper, or at least you have one footnote talking about it, um, by a, a really influential book by Donald Dayton, Discovering an Evangelical Heritage. Actually, Donald Dayton just right. last week passed away. He was promoted to glory. Um, mm. But... Um, that book highlights the role of abolitionists connected to the Wesleyan holiness revival. Um, and he even has a chapter on the army related to a women in ministry. But um, yeah. this this is uh, yeah. something that's going on, particularly in the Northeast. But we as a Salvation Army we had a natural affinity, and I say we, like our, our long history, toward these mm-hmm. matters. Um, places like the Oberlin School, Charles Finney, and who are a great influence on, um, like one of the most important influences on William and Catherine Booth. So anyway, I, I, I right. appreciate you brought that in at that point. Um, I, I'm tempted to move on here a little bit, but do you want to say anything else about that, about that that kind of well, ancient history, so to speak, before we get to the challenges? Well, the yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, one of one of the things that uh, that I love is that um, our foundation is in um, Wesleyanism, right? And what what we know about John Wesley and all of his papers and, and right. his interactions with the world during his time is that he was decidedly anti-racist. He did right. not equivocate. He absolutely hated it. And it was out of his ministry and his discipleship, as it were, of Wilberforce that uh, the institution of slavery was upended and eradicated uh, in um, in England. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the fact that his writings and his um, theology informed the Salvation Army uh, is, is important, and it couldn't be left out of a historical document um, related to the Salvation Army and racism. Right. In, in, in a lot of times, the holiness denominations, Wesleyan holiness denominations, are criticized um, for our uh, not historic pietism, but our pietism, like our focus kind of on sin. Um, 
and individual and while and that's important but you you don't have the free methodist church is called the free methodist church for a reason right and the wesleyan the the wesleyan holiness church or it became just the wesleyan denomination that we have today um in all of the holiness denominations and we can keep going through down to the nazarene church the salvation army are all connected to this idea and it kind of grew out of what was the um what was the Wesleyan heritage from John Wesley himself. But a lot of times, uh, it, even in matters like this, holiness denominations are criticized. Um, and, and there's yeah. there's some racist you know behavior that leads to that. But I, I'm really glad to kind of <laughs> highlight that here um, for that connection. Um, so you, you brought up the civil rights movement and you discussed that a bit in the Army's response or lack of response in, um, in your paper. You want to talk about that for a second? Well, sure. I mean, you know, so by the time the civil rights movement um, became an important part of the American landscape, uh, the Salvation Army had um, moved away somewhat Mm -hmm. from its overt intolerance of racism. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, you know, in in the South uh, during during that time, it was, it was a very difficult, um, a very difficult time to um, interact with social issues because, you know, during Reconstruction and even before uh, the Civil War, so many so many churches had um, split over the idea of racism right. and um, slavery, um, even even the Methodists had right. uh, split dur- during that time. And I, and I allude to that in, in my paper for, for those who want to um, read it, because, you know, um, Baptists uh, formed the Southern Baptist Convention mm-hmm. um, over their conflict related to whether or not slaveholders could even be missionaries. Hmm. And, and, that, and that was the point at which the Baptist Church split um, Presbyterians, Split um, during that time. Even uh, Methodists in the southern states formed the Methodist Episcopal Church South, South. Yeah. so that their clergymen could own African slaves. And so, um, you know, the Salvation Army and its uh, infiltration of the South had to deal with a lot of that uh, mindset in the South um, as well. And so, um, one of the things that I am really impressed by is that, you know, in the late or mid-1880s, um, Commissioner Frank Smith, who was at the time uh, the commander um, of the Salvation Army in uh, North America, um, engaged the Salvation Army in what was known as the Great Colored Campaign mm-hmm. of the South. And so there was... in intentional inclusion of black people in the ministry into the ministry of the Salvation Army. And, um, you know, I've, I've had some conversations with uh, Salvation Army um, historians and theologians about whether or not that campaign helped to preserve denominational unity in the Salvation Army, because it was during this time that uh, Thomas More yeah. Uh, split from the Salvation Army um, on the 
on the basis, so to speak, of financial independence. But it's also interesting to note that Moore's army only allowed segregated meetings during the time. Hmm. And the and that's that's according to historian James Bean. And I have uh, that information in, in the footnotes of my paper for those who want to seek out um, his, his paper on that subject or it or his paper that at least references that matter. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. So but the but the Salvation Army and international movement um, never thought that meetings should be segregated. Right. And, and so. Um, I believe um, that those um, campaigns of inclusion help to preserve denominational unity in, within the Salvation Army, at least during that time, those, those early days. Hmm. So how... So what was the Army's um, the reaction then to the civil rights movement, um, you, I mean, I, I, I know you, you you highlight the work of Brigger Luther Smith and um, some yeah. others as well. Um, but I mean, in general, I think you would you would you would have if we could go back in time, like to have nudged people, uh, army leadership, yeah. to be more <laughs> responsive. <laughs> yeah, you know, by that time, the the army um, had become. Um, quite a part of the American landscape. Yes. Um, because of our involvement in uh, the, the Great War and World War II, um, the Salvation Army was very uh, well known and widely known. Uh, you, you referenced uh, Red Hot and Righteous. It's a, a wonderful treatise on the popularity of the Salvation Army in those days. And I think the Army was very careful, you know, for um, for for me, and again, I'm just an armchair quarterback looking at an old game. Yes, yes. So I, w I wasn't there, and they're playing um, with leather I, helmets in that game. You know, like, yeah, yeah, that's 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 exactly right. Um, you know, sometimes I wish the army would have uh, leaned in a little more and been vocal and overt in the support that it lended to uh, the civil rights movement. But, um, you know, it, it did so, but um, not quite as publicly as, uh, you know, as, as maybe they could have been. Mm -hmm. uh, Colonel Alan Satterley, um, yeah. who is essentially the historian of the U.S. Southern Territory, says that, you know, there were times when laws were made, you know, laws of segregation and um, others um, that, you know, have its history in Jim Crow, that the Salvation Army obeyed those laws, but with what he calls an uneasy conscience, and mm -hmm. only when local law dictated that they had to operate this way. But what I, what I find really intriguing and encouraging is that there were, there's probably a better term for this, but rogue officers <laughs> mm -hmm. like like luther smith who was carried along by the holy ghost i believe to um participate um and um support civil rights efforts 
um, one, one, of, one of my favorite stories is how um, Brigadier Luther Smith opened up the Birmingham Salvation Army for the Freedom Riders to mm-hmm. uh, rest yes. and to recuperate um, as, as they were on their way to, um, to, to their, their civil rights movement. Um, and so um, that's one. There, there are others as well. Um, but you really have to look. You have. You really have to look for that um, information. It's not as out there as I wish it was. And so right. that's where um, the Southern Historical Center has been helpful right. to me because uh, the archivist there is uh, very, very skilled in finding that information, and uh, that is otherwise not not widely known. Right. I would love to get into some more of these details, but I do, I know we, we only have a little bit longer and, you know, I think sure. we, we, maybe we have to have a part one, part two. Um, it was in the, it was during the civil rights period that the Salvation Army did um, ordain a few officers uh, of color and, yep. you know, in the Southern Territory, Maurice Smith, who you and I both know and yep. love, um, yep. and, mm-hmm. and and other other territories as well. So I'm going to try and fast forward a little bit, and I'll give a little little tight summary. And if you want to, you know, edit, you know, give, you know, insert some other thoughts in there. Um, I think one of the challenges mm-hmm. that you, what you deal with in the paper are related to how the Salvation Army responds now and what's happened for black officers over the last 50 years. And one of the challenges is there hasn't been as many leaders uh, come from um, through our system to be able to be in a position to be in leadership. Now, most notably, um, we have, you know, not most notably, Commissioner Israel Gaither, Commissioner David Edwards, both served as territorial commanders. Commissioner Gaither is the international chief of staff. Um, That that, that can easily, and maybe to some people who are listening from an internal army perspective, sound a bit like, oh, okay, we're just bringing it up as if that makes everything okay, because there's a challenge Mm -hmm. in all of the all of the the divisional leadership, so essentially state level leadership, Kentucky and Tennessee are together. Florida is by itself. Yeah. There are only a few have only been a few leaders of color, and um, so you want to address you do address that, and I think you're probably even asked to do that um, you, in your paper. I'll just direct some people to that. There are some helpful pieces of, of information to think of how this op happens in corporate structures. But if we can, I'd like to just talk about some of the recommendations that you make um, about uh, how the Salvation Army can grow in the way we handle questions of race. Is sure. that okay? Yeah. I mean, if we jump, I'm, I'm sorry yeah, I have absolutely. to jump back some of the great stuff you have in, in your paper, but I think that that would... We're no, running. that's... Yeah, that's great. I think the you know the basis of the paper is um, you know it has to do with how um, the Salvation Army shepherds, nurtures, develops um, black officers in particular. Yeah, and I know you know even when when I say that, there's a part of me that senses your listeners recoiling mm. <laughs> when when I use that kind of terminology. Right. We don't have black officers; they're, they're, we have officers, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, the, yeah, that's right. But, you know, one of the challenges is that every, every officer comes with their own set of needs, mm-hmm. you know. So if, if we were, and, and you realize my, my last uh, appointment was at the training college. Right. Um, and so what I realized 
uh, is that when there are cadets who come through the training college who, let's say that they uh, were graduates of the Adult Rehabilitation Center and the Lord called them to officership uh, from um, an adult rehabilitation center. This essentially means that they are in recovery for substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that that population has some specific needs, which I, as a leader, need to be aware of so that I can help them be their best and thrive in their cadetship and ultimately in their officership. Right. Well, that, that same approach should inform how uh, Salvation Army leadership serves to uh, develop and cultivate and help um, officers of color grow in their ministry and in their ability not only to survive but also to thrive Mm -hmm. and to build the kingdom through this incredible gift of the Salvation Army uh, that the Lord has given us. Mm -hmm. And so all all that to say is there there are specific needs. There are specific needs that officers of color, particularly black officers, um, need that I don't know if um, a person who has never experienced those needs personally would be aware of. Mm. Yeah, this is definitely true. I, I, I just preached a sermon um, two weeks ago on Thomas, and I found this concept from John Keats, uh, the poet John Keats. That was really helpful. It's a little complicated, but it's a concept mm-hmm. of negative capability. Negative cap- that that mm. he he was saying that as a poet, like there's no way that he could describe all the experiences that he's required to describe, like and then to get into right. the emotions that people have. So he has he has to move forward with a negative capability. And I, I said something similar mm. for Thomas that he only had so much available to him. Um, and then once he saw Jesus's hands and feet, he was able to respond. Um, like we, we, yeah. we take the information that we have. Like I, I don't want people to hear that and think, oh, well, that means I can never be a part of somebody's <clears throat> experience and, and helping them grow if I have an experience. Like we, we enter into the discussion, the discipleship moment, the training moment with a, a negative capability, but still there is a capability, but it is something that needs to be acknowledged. I think the same thing is true, yeah. particularly like as it relates to the Ahmed Arbery situation, um, I, right. I, 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 killing, I just, is a, a vi- very unfortunate, like I acknowledge that you and I both have boys, your boys are a little older than mine, but I cannot, I, do, I don't have the same conversations that you have uh, with yeah. your boys um, about what yeah. it's like, what, what it would be like to go take a jog. And we yeah. we might not enter into like the whole discussion of what caused this, whether the systemic issues or all that, We, um, but it's different. There's a different experience. Yeah. And there's a different experience yeah. for black officers that, you know, who knows where they're going to be appointed, particularly as you are working them with the training environment. So yeah. th- that needs to be considered. It needs to be a part of yeah. our discussion. Absolutely. Can I can I kind of outline why that's yes. important, especially today? Yes, for please. command head. Okay, so um, and 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 I'm going to address the comments 
that I make for the next couple of minutes directly to Salvation Army leadership and command heads, if right. that's okay. And command right. heads, just for my so, friends who aren't with, familiar with the Salvation Army, are people who are at the really the top of the leadership, about 20 people who lead Salvation Army in a given region across the southern states. So um, go ahead, Marion. Yeah. 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 So um, for, for me, here in um, Memphis, Tennessee, um, I am uh, the first area commander of color. Right. And for all of um, the Salvation Army's um, quarters, which are essentially our parsonages, where, where officers live mm-hmm. while they um, are in a certain appointment, um, I have lived in neighborhoods outside the city proper. Right? Mm-hmm. These were neighborhoods that, um, and I'm going to speak in racialized tones here, so everybody hold on to them, uh, themselves. <laughs> um, um, these are neighborhoods, uh, essentially, uh, the places to which white people fled to leave the city, mm-hmm. right? And so now I live in what is basically um, a white neighborhood, mm-hmm. okay? Now, it's not a bad thing, just, right. you know, um, and, and the reason the reason for that, these these uh, good neighborhoods have good schools. Mm-hmm. But the, the way that I interact in my neighborhood, um, just because I'm the Salvation Army officer, doesn't really give me uh, a pass to come and go in my neighborhood um, without suspicion. Mm-hmm. Maybe it does. And I, can, and I can sense, even as I say that, your listeners saying, what are you talking about? Okay, but Marion is also the father of two black boys who are built like men. Right. And so when, when my boys go riding their bicycles, um, Zion and Joshua, and right? Zion and Joshua. How old are yeah, they? Joshua is 16. Uh, Joshua is 16 years old. Um, and, uh, Zion is 13. Yeah. Great and they, guys. they are both, uh, either my size or taller than me. Wow. These are, these are big boys. And if they go riding their bicycles through these West Tennessee neighborhoods and they, they both stand um, ahead or more taller than all of their friends of the same age, um, you know, as a, as a black parent, um, I'm concerned. Hmm. And, and I, could, I can see the kind of interactions. You know, we have the, uh, the luxury of having Facebook, neighborhood Facebook pages. Yeah. And people are all not always charitable. Okay. Um, <laughs> I need to get on one of those. Maybe I'm I de- don't. Maybe I don't. <laughs> oh, maybe you don't want to. Yeah, there there are times when I, I just uh, have to mute the conversation uh, so I don't see them. Um, but, you know, at a, at a time and in a in a place where um, the the neighborhood May they might have specific feelings towards uh, people, um, quote unquote, from the city moving into their neighborhoods. Hmm. That can that can be a little challenging. And so when um, you know someone like Trayvon Martin is uh, killed, and um, you know if I am a command head and I remember, man, I have I have officers in my command. Uh, who have children the same color and age as um, Trayvon Martin or as Ahmaud Arbery 
um, I might just want to check in and see how they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, that seems, that's a very vulnerable call, but it's meaningful to uh, officers of color. My command had thought of me. He thought of my boy hmm. when he saw this happen. Yeah. Um, or, you know, speaking of the neighborhood, like I have a, I have a friend who recently took his new appointment and uh, was on his back porch, and he's moved into this very nice neighborhood, and uh, he hears some tires squealing out in front of his home and hears people shouting the N-word. Hmm. That's a... Uh, that's that's very scary. Yeah. And so um, I, I want I want, you know, command heads to know that uh, officers do face this kind of thing. But um, because of their covenant and their call to this mission, um, they realize that that is something that um, they need to negotiate. But it helps to know that there are people um, who support them and right. who are on their side. And not only that but who are um, courageous enough to call and to display that support during these difficult national times in the world. Right. Now, a few years ago, um, and I'm, it's a tragic that I can't remember the specific situation, um, but mm-hmm. I think it, it was toward the end of the time that Commissioner Don and Debbie Bell, Commissioners Don and Debbie Bell were serving as the territorial leaders in the Southern Territory. Um, yeah. You were part of a, I know, you, I think you were at the train school in that time, but you were a part of a, of a public conversation of sorts. And then there was a statement um, that, yeah. that came about because of that. Um, was yep. that, was that a helpful moment? Was that a good moment of? Absolutely. Yeah. That, that is precisely what I'm talking about. So that was, uh, that was shortly after Charlottesville. Okay, sure. That's Charlottesville. Gotcha. Right. And, and um, the whole notion of there being um, good people on both sides right. was, was troubling right, definitely. to um, people of color. And though we only talk about it in the Hush Harbor, <laughs> troubling to Salvation Army officers of color. Right. And so to have... Um, a territorial leader to not only say that this is anti-gospel, this is anti-Christ behavior, um, but to also remind us of our territorial mandate, our territorial mission statement, which um, indicates that we will love inclusively Mm -hmm. in the community where we live. Um, There was also, if you listen to that, a set of instructions for every Salvation Army unit, Hmm. that um, we will discuss that territorial mission statement. In particular, um, the the imperative to love inclusively, but also that it would, uh, that local Salvation Army units would participate in um, peaceful, ecumenical demonstrations of support for one another. Very, very clear, measurable goals for the Salvation Army. And yes, that that was very helpful. And it's interesting, I looked that up um, not long ago because I needed to hear it again. Right. And um, there was, I think, well over 30,000 
uh, views wow. of of that because uh, people need to hear that, and not not only not only black people, right, time, right, right. Everyone need, needs to be reminded of that. So. Well, so, this is part of yeah. there, there. So there are these responses. They're not a silver bullet. They're not something you can say, okay, we're done now. Like, you know, the work continues. It kind of my, my slogan for now in my life. I'm thinking about changing it in my 40s. And I just turned 40 a few weeks ago. It was been forward to the fight, right? Um, so for my 30s, it was Welcome. forward to fight. I'm trying to, fi- oh man, I know, it's a tough one. Um, but <laughs> trying to figure out like what that next statement would be. But in the forward to the fight mentality, acknowledge like there might be a battle that's completed. Uh, there, there, there's a victory in the moment, but there's still, we're still moving forward until Jesus comes, not as a way of abandoning, abandoning any ideas or, or sin, um, but at the same time, just still moving. Um, you, one of the unique things that you did part of your, um, paper was that you brought together a group of, of, of black officers from around the United States and you had a discussion group, a discussion board of sorts, and you're able to pull in that information. But there was, there still is a sense that, okay, we could look at the Salvation Army's international position statement on racism. We could bullet point um, notable moves of, of uh, on individual levels, even things that have happened, like offices that have been put in place. Um, we could also find things that have been done that have been wrong. But yet there still is this kind of sense of um, there still is, uh, pro- there still are problems that need to be addressed. And mm-hmm. um, I think that that is where the conversation often breaks down is because it's hard to develop those next steps of what we should do, uh, of, of what that looks like. And that's where uh, it gets to be particularly problematic. And you gave uh, six six recommendations. Um, I'm just going to go, well, let me just go through those real quick. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah, so, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Since the absence of my, the first one is since the absence of minorities in command level and cabinet appointments in America has been identified by a national commander, thankfully on Captain's Corner podcast, so my own little preview hey. uh, shot out there, as an, <laughs> as an issue that deserves priority attention, create and empower a commission to examine and implement measures to quickly correct the problem. Okay, go on that. Go, t- tell me, what, what do you have in mind with that? Like, what would that look like? Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm going to kind of take you backstage into the, the scary parts of my brain okay. right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> so with that, um, when, when I um, came up with, with that uh, as a result and kind of floated that um, through the panel that I was uh, discussing with, I was actually um, in the part of my year where I'm reading through Acts chapter 15. Okay. Right? I read so that yesterday. The, the Council at Jerusalem. Ah, yeah. okay, yeah. good. So you have... Paul, who realizes that there is a different ethnic contingent that the Lord is filling with the Holy Ghost. And Paul makes his way to Jerusalem to speak with the Jerusalem Council about how to best support and encourage and affirm this contingent of believers. Right? And and by that, I mean the Gentiles. And, And so there was overt advocacy happening uh, for this 
minority group within the church. And the Council at Jerusalem gives some very specific guidance for how to include and provide some necessary, gracious pastoring for the Gentiles who were coming to Christ in what was at the time a majority Jewish movement. Mm -hmm. And so my question that I often think about, and I've actually wondered it aloud uh, a few times to those who would hear, is, uh, you know, so who, who is who is the Paul right now who is advocating for these different um, ethnic groups within Salvation Army uh, ministry? Because in, in the South right now, um, and I will even say since I, I presented this paper to um, a, a panel that consisted of people from every territory, um, the, the Army is... Um, majority white in terms of its leadership. Like at, at this moment, right, um, it's majority white. Yeah. Yeah. And to a certain extent, I'm sorry to interrupt you, the, the, but like in the Eastern Territory, amongst the command heads, you have two sets of leadership, um, two divisional leaders that are people mm-hmm. of color in the Southern Territory. There's yeah. a none, yeah. though there has been Hispanic in the la- uh, Hispanic leader in the last 10 years. Um, and I'm, in the Central Territory, there is a one couple in the West. Marion, is there any, I know there's people close to those positions, but right. There. Yeah, not not that I'm aware of. And, you know, things always change. I mean, right. moves have just gone out in, in the West. And so I don't know what that looks like. Um, but but I you know part of part of what I would like um, to see someday since you know the national commander who is really um, the PR voice of the Salvation Army across the nation as I understand one of his roles to be yeah is um, for him uh, it would be important because nationally um, it is it is my view and probably the silent view of others. Uh, the Salvation Army is socially vulnerable right now mm-hmm. um, because of the fact that there are no people of color um, on on any of the cabinets or on any of the um, you know boards of trustees and and very 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 few on any of uh, the TECs mm-hmm. and so I think having a commission that is empowered to examine and implement measures to correct this problem, um, it's it's not a a crazy idea. It is um, supported in Scripture and also supported in just good business practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, Fortune 500 companies were doing this. Mm. Um, And, um, you know, as of yet, in, in my view, and I have to remind the listener at this point, I am a salvationist through and through. I have signed a soldier's covenant. I've signed an officer's covenant. And um, my discipleship and my service is tied up in the Salvation Army. And I don't want someone to, to misunderstand and say, well, 
Marion is disloyalty is disloyal because he's talking about racism. That's that's not the point. I love the army enough to point out this area where we are vulnerable. Right, right. And and I don't know that there's anyone who is saying that loud and urgently enough. Right. And so um, f- for me, I, I want my army to be um, safe and to have um, authenticity when it comes to um, an egalitarian approach to leadership, not only as it involves gender, but also um, race and ethnicity. And right now, the optics Right. Do not suggest that. Right. You you quote, quote a Facebook post that somebody had saying um, about one territory's leadership. Um, it doesn't pass the, at the time the 2018 eyeball test. Um, yeah. So so that's a is interesting. So in you know, I, I just diverging here for a second. The the idea of of. Uh, wanting to bring about some kind of change does is connected to a love of the mission. For instance, um, people won't be surprised that I've advocated and have published that the Salvation Army should reintroduce the practice of the traditional Protestant sacraments. And I make that case in part for missional reasons. Now, we won't get off on that right now. But the same thing here is yeah. like what you're saying is like, we need to address this for missional reasons. Like we're extremely vulnerable at this point by those optics that are very present. Now, we, I'm sure... Um, we could we could solve that pretty um, if, if there was a crisis at the moment, they would bring up the leaders that we have who are in positions or maybe even you as somebody as articulate as you are to be able to address this. But I mean, inside, we, we need to have some other way of, of, of achieving a different result. And this is where it gets a little challenging because it the basic um, America, one of the great American ideas is to have a quality of opportunity that everybody, and, and, and for so many years, we did not provide that equality of opportunity to, to racial groups, to minority right. groups. And that's created yeah. real challenges. And then you have to figure out like, well, yeah. how do, how do we solve that? And the yep. one way that it's thought that you solve that is through an equality of outcome. Where we Correct. say what we need right now is we need 10% executive leadership to be in the uh, to be people of color, and let's just make that change yeah. right now. There are people who are capable yeah. to do it. Let's 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 make that happen. Um, now that that's that's where we get into a challenging situation, and that might be what's at the core of people maybe even resisting going as far as saying uh, giving you a call when you're going through a challenge because we're not quite sure how to implement this and it's messy it's messy for us to take those moves um yeah and, and there's a history that's involved like i think in part that's related to that the there aren't people in, in who have been in position for a long time that have been able yeah. to rise up through the system. But there's also no doubt injustices done to people who could be in those positions right now, who for yes. for whatever reason aren't. And that happens on many fronts. There are people be, because of nepotism, uh, reverse ne- nepotism. Uh, there are people mm-hmm. who, who aren't in leadership positions. Maybe maybe they made one person mad and then they're not in that role. Maybe there is a racial, <laughs> diminu- uh, a ra- racial dimension as to why people mm-hmm. aren't in those appointments. But we're in a position right now where you often talk about the problem is that people will challenge you with the pipeline discussion. Like, yeah. you, you want to address mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so let me let me first um, appeal to um, a very good podcast that I listened to, I guess, about maybe seven or eight months ago, and it's when you were interviewing the national commander. Right. And one of the things that he pointed out was uh, the, um, the issue of affinity bias within right. um, the process of selection for appointments. And here's the thing. We all, every person, possesses some degree of affinity bias. Mm-hmm. Right? Like we, we want to give opportunities to people who remind us of ourselves in some way. And uh, Commissioner Hudson, to his credit and to my deep respect, um, he admitted, he, he said, uh, the only way that I got to where I am is because someone looked at me and saw potential. Mm-hmm. Right. And the reason they saw potential is uh, because on some level, I reminded them uh, of themselves and what they already see in leadership. Okay. So affinity bias is probably something that needs to be um, examined in all of our own hearts and and probably the results of affinity bias uh, as it relates to uh, Salvation Army officer appointments up to and including uh, leadership. Mm-hmm. So, so that's important. The other thing that I would say, and this is, this is the pipeline conversation, yeah. is um, this is not like our issue alone. It's not. Right. Um, Fortune 500 companies, other nonprofits have all leaned into um, that oppor- this opportunity to correct um, the, the issue. Um, you know, 15, 20, uh, 30, and 40 years ago, um, these Fortune 500 companies were, were looking at this. In fact, um, when I had just become an officer um, and I was appointed to the Lakewood Corps uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, right. um, someone recommended me for a program called the High Potential Diverse Leaders program, Hmm. HPDL. And uh, my area commander at the time, Major Jim Seiler, um, supported uh, that recommendation and wanted me to attend that. Mm -hmm. And what I have found since then, now this, to to clarify what that is, what a uh, high potential diverse leadership program is, um, it is um, something that helps close the gap for women and minorities to make sure that they have all the necessary uh, competencies and chops to uh, rise to an executive leadership position. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, some of the experience that maybe they didn't have because they weren't born and raised into this kind of work, first generation officers, so to speak, right, um, are are able to um, compete, so to speak when it comes to that nonprofit sector. That's what, the, that's what the High Potential Diverse Leaders Program was about. But as I have uh, now embarked on this kind of thought process, I look around at other companies and other nonprofits, and for them, 
diverse leaders programs is part of their best and common practices. It's nothing new to say, hey, we want to make sure that there is equity right. uh, for people of color. And they are shameless and courageous in the way they build these programs and shameless and courageous in the way that they um, select people to participate in those programs. Um, they don't, you know, say, oh, well, I don't know, it's not, it's not PC to say this is for women and uh, black people or Hispanic people. I mean, they, they say this is, this is the point. Right. And so if anyone were to Google um, diverse leaders program, you would get hits on companies like AT&T, Verizon, Wells Fargo, um, and others, because it's just a part of their practice. It's nothing, there's, it's nothing bad. It's a part of their best and common practice. And that's how they exhibit um, an organizational investment into their uh, black and minority talent. Right. And I never heard you say and, in there that this is a um, an affirmative action program based upon quotas. Right. Like, so we can just put away those fears too. like uh, may, maybe you would like to have that. I don't think so. I mean, what you're describing no. is giving an opportunity for the like true equality of opportunity um, and where there have yeah. been disadvantages in the past and where there are certain hurdles that exist. This gives an opportunity to work through this. I, I mean, that's a first I've heard that, you know, brought in the context of the army. Um, I, yeah. I mean, first blush, it sounds great to me. One of the interesting yeah, things well, too, we have, yeah, we have, we have those, we have programs like that, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, programs like arrow, right? Right. Or, um, Bringle or ICO, ICO or, yeah. um, you know, those, those different, opportunities to be uh, nurtured in salvationism and nurtured in the presentation of ministry gifts um, and nurtured in exploring um, the inner life. Um, these are these are great opportunities. And um, even if there is not a um, an effort to build a standalone program, I think that it would be helpful to at least examine um, who command heads are sending to those kind of programs. Mm -hmm. And that might be great. I mean, that might be something that, you know, command heads and others who are listening right now would feel, you know, um, very encouraged by, because when they look over the track record of uh, who they have selected, um, they feel like it's free from affinity bias. They're not just sending people that, um, you know, were somehow shoestring relatives of theirs or um, who were their core cadets right, um, right. and they, they love them and they, they have this uh, general feeling of goodwill toward them because something about them reminds them of themselves or some experience they had. And so, um, yeah, and I, and I appreciate you bringing up the notion, uh, the specter of affirmative action because uh, that was... Um, something that became politicized, you know, the, the notion that um, unqualified right. black people and women would uh, take the seats of um, well-qualified white men um, 
was was the way that the whole affirmative action right um, right right policies impacted the world and especially the united states and so the the way to make my head explode is to be in that conversation and uh someone say well i'm not just going to promote someone because right uh, they're black or they're a woman um right and we both heard that, uh, that and you might because, have heard that more than, than me yeah <laughs> I have, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a lot, and and I and I hate that because um, exploring exploring that policy um, in and of itself, you see the outcome of that policy is um, that it it served to create a better sense of equity for um, white women. When you look at the data, and that's wonderful, so that's a, right, that's a great right. outcome. Yeah, it's already biased, and I don't. And I don't, I don't want to take anything away from that, but I won't allow anyone else to do that when I'm around either. Hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, affirmative action did have outcomes, but it did not necessarily, um, at a grand level, benefit um, ethnic minorities as much as it uh, benefited um, minorities based on gender. Right. It's interesting. One thing to think back is like, okay, so because we're at this place where, where there aren't uh, a representative number that would be make us comfortable and make us proud of diverse leadership in the Salvation Army in the United States, of course, and we don't have time to get into the global picture. Of course, globally, we're doing great. We're doing pretty well. Uh, oh, but yeah. in the United States, oh, yeah. um, that's definitely a challenge. Now, the, here's the thing is you look back at it and you think, okay, is that is that sin? Was there, is, is it, has it been a sin, a willful transgression to a known law of God? You know, and essentially racism for me is denying that somebody's created in the image of God. There's systemic and personal dimensions of that. But what was, right. and, and, and you know, I would just say probably, it probably was. Um, at the yeah. same time, there's, there's this, like, okay, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of sin. Thanks, Marion. I appreciate you helping me with that. Um, definitely was a part of that, the, the situation that led us to the place that we are. Um, what then, like, but this is, this is one way to move forward is like making sure that these opportunities are there. I think, you know, we, we are at a different place. I want to describe like one scene that I had where, and you might say, Andy, I don't, I don't like that as much. Like, I don't like what you're. I don't think that's as good as you think. Okay, and that's fine. Um, I, I had the privilege of being on the Territorial Candidates Council um, when I served in Lawrenceville, Georgia, and um, there was a great moment. And I'm not sure if anybody else remembers it like I do, but where Major Vivian Childs was also part of the Territorial Candidates Council and was a pioneer. Her and her husband, a pioneer. Uh, she's actually from yeah. Quincy, Illinois, and um, yeah. as African American officer. And there was a moment where the stamp went down and we didn't know as nobody in the room probably knew it was coming and somebody was just approved um, to go to training probably while you were serving there. And she started crying and she said, that now takes us to 101, 101 right. African-American uh, officer, if they make it through the training process. And there's this key moment. Now, I think... I'm hopeful that we have had some course correction along the way. I'm now I'm not saying that again. Like I, I just wanted to acknowledge to you a minute ago. Like there is definitely sin involved with what's happened and like where we are. But there has been some course correction, and I'm hopeful when I when I look around at my colleagues and see people who are serving that at, at various ages that we we are in line for a bright future, um, that this won't be a problem anymore. 
uh, or a problem to the same degree that it is today. Do you have a, a similar hope or do you think the only way it happens is by um, some more specific moves like what you're describing? I don't, maybe it's not an either or yeah. question. Yeah. No, I think I think that is great, and um, I love Major Child. Yes, uh, she is <laughs> outspoken um, yes. and um, very thoughtful, and um, and and one of my heroes. Both she and Otis um, are just amazing, gracious people. I thank God for their example. Um, so, I want to say, just in response to racism, yeah. um, and and what it looks like, you know. One of the things that's very important is the definition of racism. And mm-hmm. at some point, um, I hope that a definition is provided in this, uh, in, in this conversation because people who um, are subject to racism usually have a different Interesting. Yeah. Um, def- definition of racism. Um, so if, you know, like I know in the South and my, my own grandfather, um, who is, um, you know, lived, born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina, um, when he thinks racism, I'm talking about my white grandfather now, Right. Okay. Uh, when he thinks of racism, he thinks of single overt incidences and activities which directly hurt another person um, who is of a different race. Right. Right. So name calling, violence, et cetera. Okay. That's racism. Right. Okay. That's what he said. Yeah. Um, people of color generally have a more systemic look at racism. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. The fact that um, education and healthcare um, and law enforcement and approaches to uh, representation, um, media, all of these things are racism. And so it's very it's uh, it's much more subtle. And so if your listeners have an idea of that's not racism, I didn't call anybody the N word. Right, that's, right. that's not what we're talking about. Right. That's that is not what we're talking about. We're talking more about inequities and systemic injustices that are apparent um, and not not only apparent, but sometimes visible um, eyeball test. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for instance, to. to um, to show that there's there's something wrong here, if uh, you know pe- people of color are not represented, that is a form of racism. And so I just I just want to point that out. Yes. Now the sinfulness comes in with two two ideas: an overt action or the omission of action. Right. Okay. So what what my uh, what my grandfather whom I'm named after Marion Platt Sr. He is my eyeballs. He raised me, and I and I love him very much. He's the most special and important person in my world. Awesome. Um, what he would what he would call racism is indeed a sin. That's an overt action against someone based on color or ethnicity. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, what my other grandfather uh, would say, uh, whom I love, and <laughs> man. You know, if you can picture a little light-skinned uh, Marion Platt sitting in between his two grandfathers in a boat, that's how I picture them. Oh, uh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. They're, they're both. Were so they together to much? Me. Were they around each other much? Again? Were they? Or oh were, yeah, they were buds. Oh, good. They were fishing buddies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, 
the uh, what he would say is, yeah, when I came back from World War II and I applied for my Montgomery GI Bill benefits, um, there were certain neighborhoods I could not live in. Mm-hmm. And someone would say, oh, that's not racism. Well, actually, it is. It's a systemic right. uh, approach or the fact that the neighborhood that he did move into was more heavily policed right. during those days. Right. And so um, marginalized people typically have a different definition of racism. And the importance is once we are hip to it, once we see it, we have an opportunity to uh, address it. And if we choose not to, right, if we, if we rub our hands and shift our feet and say, oh, there's nothing we could do, then that is a sin of omission. Hmm. There, was, there was something that you knew to do, but you chose to do nothing. Uh, that, that is a problem. So is, is it okay to uh, say that? Yeah, no, no, it's good. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think you and I disagree yeah. on that. Yeah. Um, I, like, okay. I think, the, yeah, I think we'd have to go for a long time before you and I would really disagree. <laughs> uh, like, um, yeah. so maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're thinking of some things that, but, but I think where I, where not I'm struggling at all um, is what I'm wondering has, ha- have, like, we have made changes and there have been, there has been an embrace. Uh, there, there's more uh, people of color serving as Salvation Army officers today, I I would think, than 10 yep. years ago, than 20 yep. years ago. And I think that that's a part of, like, what's happening. And, and yes, I, I agree with you. I think we should try to find ways to make sure that people are given the same opportunities. And I love how in your paper... Well, well that's... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's 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 the point. So you're you're absolutely right. Again, my last appointment, I was at the training college, right? And I have seen um, so many uh, young people come through who are um, minorities. I was really thrilled yes. um, with with this session that is ab- about to be commissioned. That for the first time in history, a white woman was the flag bearer. Um, and she is an immigrant to mm. the United States. <laughs> Man, I was so thrilled about that. Um, and that's just uh, an important signal, I think, to women uh, mm-hmm. in, in the Salvation Army. Um, moreover, I believe now um, in the session that is now entering their second year uh, that the session president is uh, a black woman. Wonderful. I I believe that's the first time in the history of the training college. I'm not, hmm. I'm not sure that for that, I'm not certain because I wasn't there. Um, but contrast that to the fact that my session uh, had one and a half black people. Hmm. And I, could, I constituted the half right. of the bridge builders. My, my wife um, was the other. Right. And, and, uh, and we had a large session, you know, and the, you know, I'm thrilled to say the bridge builders are still largely serving as active officers in the territory. But that's uh, the, yeah, so we have come a long way, at least in the last 15 years and even more. My, my question is, what are we doing to intentionally in an ongoing effort to hasten the day where um, there is obvious, um, visible, and skilled and empowered inclusion 
at the highest tables so that um, when decisions are being made, um, we are, and by we I mean the Salvation Army, uh, the Cabinet, uh, we are not as socially vulnerable as we might have been if there were not um, minority voices at the table. Right. Oh, <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, there, I agree. There's, there's been decisions. There's been decisions that have been made that I have uh, I have wondered would it have been the same if um, you know I don't know. Yeah, sure, sure. If, if there were diverse voices there. The table. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. uh, that is like you no doubt about it. Like we wonder like how things could be different even now at that moment. I, l- I like where you're going. I think like the big area that I appreciate is that it's this broad application of a, a quality of opportunity that if if we like really push ourselves in into that area where we are allowing people to have an opportunity within our system to have access to everything that's available to them, um, it, you know, the, there's other discussions too. Like you bring up like about women in leadership, married women in leadership. Um, what other type of diversity do we need? I know we're, we're way over, but I, and I text my next person who happens to be my brother um, uh, who's coming on. Ah, and, and, okay, and I said, what's up? Yeah, I will. Um, the, so he can wait for me. Um, the, you bring up, and I just, the, mili- the use of the military and what's happened in the military and their application. So I just want to direct people to your paper. I think that most Word and Deed, maybe after Word and Deed articles, which is the journal where this article is published, it was available for free online at some point. They might like wait a year or something. But um, yeah. you, you footnote uh, Jeff Hitchcock's book, Lifting the White Veil, um, and then yeah. some other pieces too that talk about um, – of uh, the way the military has gone about um, making, because because like yeah. there's like a real clear battle call. Like we, you've got to overcome racism in in all of its yeah. fu- in all of its forms, institutional, personal, yep. in the military. Because you have you have to fight for each other, and so like yeah, that's correct. Life is mm-hmm. on the line, and I can and I can speak that from I can speak to that from an experiential standpoint. So right. I joined uh, the U.S. Army in 1995, and okay. Um, I remember um, as as a young soldier in a combat arms unit learning uh, infantry skills and small arms warfare and anti-tank um, tactics and all of that, that, there was a very clear call from our battalion commander. He was looking for, uh, his word, studs hmm. who were of color because he wanted, he wanted to send um, more young black men to specialized warfare schools, hmm. mm-hmm. and he was not shame. He was not shameful about it. Hmm. He said, uh, "You know, can you can you run can you run two miles in under twelve minutes or uh, under fourteen minutes? Can hmm. you can you swim? Be- um, you you look you look like you're in shape. You have any interest in ranger school? Because I want to send you. Wow. You know, and so um, and it's interesting because I. Uh, I had forgotten all about that until I read um, a book entitled Can't Hurt Me by uh, one of the most decorated men in the history of the military um, hmm. who happened to be a man of color who went to ranger school, who went to SEAL school and um, to the, the Air Force uh, pararescue school wow. and all of this. And, and he, 
he was um, a sailor at the time, and he recalls that he became one of the recruiters for that effort. Hmm. Right. So, so the military was very intentional about um, making sure that the opportunities uh, were extended so that um, black men and women could see themselves as uh, potentially being trained as specialized warfare operatives. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so the military, since its inception, really has been, um, that might be a little bit of an overstatement, but at, at least into the Civil War when the 54th Massachusetts Infantry was recruited and the second South Carolina and others um, were were recruited um, was very intentional about inclusion and they still do that to this day now they have they have um, a means whereby these days uh, they are trying to make sure that they are eliminating affinity bias through um, a a program um, that helps to eliminate bias for the selection of battalion commanders, which, mm. you know, this is someone who oversees a unit of about 1,500 soldiers. And yeah. what they were seeing is when they looked at all the pictures of battalion commanders around the armed forces, in particular the Army, they said, oh, wow, they all look alike. Yeah, interesting. Probably even not just Something their color, but probably even like other features too. Like they might have a oh, absolutely, a certain, and they point that out. Their they, ears they, don't stick out. They, their their chin or their <laughs> height. Well, if if you consider the ears and the chin and the height to be like badges, right? So, does this person have airborne wings on their on their mm. uniform? Have they attended air assault school? Do they have an expert infantryman badge? Do they have a combat patch on their right shoulder? Hmm. Um, these are all things that um, good research indicated that battalion commanders were being selected, not just on the basis of their aptitude or their potential, but on the basis of other factors that lead to affinity bias. Mm -hmm. Do they have mm -hmm. a ranger tab? Do they serve at my unit? You know, I'm Fifth yeah, Mountain, sure. and I love, love the fact they have my, my patch. Yeah. Right? Um, oh, I mean, so you're hitting all, all I mean, I see things. all the and, army parallels with what you're saying here. I interrupted oh, yeah. you a little bit. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, well, that, well, that experience informs my observation yeah. of the army that I'm in now. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it would be quite natural for me to cite um, what the what the U.S. Army is doing to eliminate affinity bias. And you know what? Um, the fact that they are not omitting any opportunity uh, to to build inclusion and to build a better army through those efforts is so encouraging to me as a veteran and mm -hmm. i'm certain that it's encouraging to people who are active duty right now right and for me somebody who's not served to know that i'm being protected well <laughs> yeah yeah you know yeah, like i absolutely. want i want that you know, military I've, to be as good as it can be absolutely and you know it's what's interesting to me um when, when I was in the military, um, it was unheard of for a woman uh, to be in the infantry. Hmm. Well, it's, it's becoming more and more common. I mean, there are women right now, and I'm so proud of this, women who are walking around with ranger tabs, like specialized 
direct warfare operatives mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who are women. And so they have, they have cracked a ceiling, but they needed the advocacy of those who were in power, those who were um, advocates, um, and frankly, those who were white men with ranger tabs, uh, who said, you know what? I think women should be uh, offered the opportunity to attend ranger school. And now we have (laughs) an incredibly better army because of it. Hmm. And I just wonder what parallels could be discovered if we were courageous enough to figure out what that kind of advocacy looks like in other armies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, I think that it, 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 even if you were to take the racial piece out, which I don't want to do, even if you were to pull that out of this discussion, there people have this discussion come particularly this time of year when moves come out regularly. Well, you know, fill in the blank. <laughs> they they got that. They are pointed there because of well. That's, That's their friend. Yeah, or... <laughs> this is whatever it is. And there's a lot of truth to some of that. Um, but I, I think that this uh, piece of like blowing away the affinity bias, I think that's a beautiful piece that we could add to our arsenal as a Salvation Army in this piece. Well, I'm I'm going to have to cut a short here a short in a sense um maybe we can have a part two um because we didn't get I, I we only got to one i think we 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 hit little points of your six other recommendations but maybe this is a nice introduction for people to go and read for themselves or just check out marion online um and somebody who's you know been not and i just affirm that you haven't just preached on these topics like when i've heard you preach you haven't necessarily shared this way you're a, you know a speaker that people love to have and um you're a leader in uh dialogue so i just applaud you for this i know i just want to ask a question how is this all um affecting your own soul and your spiritual you know your walk with the lord in these days particularly uh, in times where you're you know taking a more prophetic public voice how are you doing yeah man Thank you for for asking that. I have to tell you, one of the things that occurs to me is that this message can be um, offensive. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I am, um, in, in spite of all the time that I spend um, on stage behind a microphone, um, you know, sharing God's word and interacting with God's people, um, I'm quite an introvert. <laughs> mm, interesting. Yeah, and I, I enjoy uh, my private life, and so um, for, for me to be outspoken like like this, and as the Lord has required of me, um, there's a great risk in that. Not only, not only a risk to my, um, you know, emotional <laughs> well-being, um, but also to the notion of, I think, what, for what lacks a better term, maybe ascendancy in the Salvation Army. Mm. Um, that because I've, and it's been said to me, you know, you're speaking out, man, you're really, you're really blowing up the bridges ahead of you. <laughs> huh. And, um, and so I'm having to dig into a repository of courage right. to speak this way that I, I was not aware that I had. Right. And, 
Um, and so that's, that's, a, that's a deep question. But what I can say to you, um, and you are numbered among these, is that I, I find great value in um, relationships with people who love me enough to risk the message. Hmm. To say, say, say that what, again, what frisk the message? Risk? Risk the yeah, message? Frisk, yeah, frisk the message. You know, Tell in, me, what do you in, mean? W- with the idea of, you know, having prophetic words being tested. Oh, I gotcha. Um, yeah. But, you know, to frisk is to check yeah. where my heart is and say, you know, are you, are you angry right, right now? Yeah. Is yeah. that way? Are you speaking out of your emotions or are you, you know, help me be certain that you're being carried along by the Holy Spirit in, in this messaging. And I love that because I do not want to be in error and I do not want to be hurtful to my hearers. Um, And so um, I think, you know, if you were to ask me to put a word on it, I would just say vulnerable. Bless you. Yeah. Vulnerable. Um, And, you know, in addition to that, that has a lot to do with inclusion because who at the table right now is helping to interpret uh, this message to my leaders? Who Hmm. is saying, um, Marion uh, is not trying to hurt us. Right. <laughs> He's trying to help us. And so um, the, the feeling is vulnerable, and there are a lot of layers to that. Well, maybe a few people will share this podcast with them. Uh, you know, people who have their cell phone numbers can just pass this along. We appreciate people who oh. share share the influence. I don't know. I, I This 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 podcast has the potential to go past uh, the general. I had the general on last year, which I, which I was thankful to see him uh, retweet uh, a link to your uh, presentation to your paper. You, but number one and two—that's number one in our podcast. Number two is your friend and mine, Ryan Mayo and Chris DeBorowitz, and they're they're they oh, have, they're beating out wonderful. all kinds of scholars and all all sorts of people. I think what just to give, I think people might find this reassuring. Um, I remember it will, Major Joanne Shade, Major Doctor Joanne Shade, uh, who's somebody I've never yeah. met face to face. She was one of the people long time ago, like a while back into the '90s, was talking about um, equality of opportunity for married women officers. And I, I, I'll, I'll admit, like I, I mean, you know, since I haven't met her, I haven't been able to tell her this, but I found it really interesting. One time, I assumed that this is a obviously articulate, gifted woman, um, that yeah. I assume that she was wanting to be in leadership herself. Now, that was a, a, yeah. a poor uh, presupposition that I had. And then I found an article. Yeah. She's like, look, I don't want to be a DC. I don't want to travel right. every every um, you know every weekend and be in a sleep in a hotel bed more than my own bed. And I and I <laughs> thought that was a very disarming piece. And um, like and you and I have had conversations like when we were in the same division of Lawrenceville when I was in Lawrenceville and you're in Savannah. You're like, man, leave me in Savannah. Like I'll stay here for the yeah. rest of my career. Like this isn't just. I'll give you a chance to say that. Like this isn't about you becoming general. Or you becoming no. yeah, DC oh or something gosh. like like somebody I, somebody needs to do those jobs, but I don't. I mean, I'm not necessarily lining up to do it myself. Like that's not. I'll let you talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. You know what? That didn't even um, occur to me that there would be an opening to address that. But I have. You know, that was some of the feedback that I received from um, 
a, a friend who heard that said that Marion is only vocal about this because he believes that he should be in leadership. And, that's, you know, um, it was not it was not observing the witness and the ministry of a divisional commander that led me to accept the call to officership. It mm-hmm. was watching and being under the ministry and influence of um, gifted core officers. Yes. And so the, the basis of my call was to core officership. And I enjoy that. I enjoy the influence that comes with being able to lead people to deeper lives in Christ. And so any opportunity I have to wield that influence, that's what I want. But if I notice something that would in, improve the experience of every Corps officer everywhere, um, and I you know, make overtures and I you know, submit those suggestions and have those conversations and, um, for years and years and decades, uh, nothing is happening. Um, then I want to have opportunities to engage that conversation. Um, and, and so that's kind of where I am, mm-hmm. but I, I assure you, I don't, you know, um, angling for a leadership position is not, is not a part of the conversation. It's not something that's in my head. Right. And I, I right think now. you probably are calling out and like, as have I, even with other minority officers or candidates, like, Hey, I, I really think you could be in leadership someday. And, you know, they might not be called to that. They might not think, but I think it's good to like want other people to be in those roles, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you want, or that might not be where God leads me or you. I think people can make that assumption. um, And because they can see, they could imagine you being in that role. And I think some have said similar things to me, but I, that doesn't mean that that's what is your desire. And so I appreciate you taking time to address that. And uh, yeah, you know, I think, I think that's the basis of some of the comments that I've heard is that they they were concerned because they saw the potential, um, for, 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 for me to one day be, um, a divisional leader, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. or uh, some kind of command head and talking openly about, um, you know, racism right, <laughs> is right. not part of the traditional path right, right. to leadership. <laughs> well, and I, I've had to deal with that in, in a very different area, but like even just coming out vocally on sacraments <laughs> is like, okay, well, um, you, sh- you know, and some people have said to me, I know, I, I don't mean to, these are not apples to apples, just so you know, like I, um, Oh, I get it though. Yeah. So like I, people have said, well, Andy, if, if you really feel that strongly about the sacraments, just be quiet for 20 years <laughs> and then you can bring it out. <laughs> And then, and then you can be about the, but but it, it kind of denies the the truth. And I think it has to move beyond um, experience to truth. And um, yeah, so that's another subject. Well, we could go on and on. As you can tell, Marion, I mean, I know he's done this with other people. We've, I can, I can list the locations where we were sitting, where we've had these conversations before. So I hope it's been beneficial Same. to all of you who paid attention. And, and I know uh, Marion and I just enjoy talking like this and um, you can, uh, can pray. How can people uh, find you? Uh, you? Even Memphis websites or whatever. Where can people find you, Marion? Online? Yeah, well, um, it's it's not uh, terribly difficult. I'm uh, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and uh, other social media outlets. I'm easy to find there. But um, if folks want to know more about my 
uh, call to officership and the uh, intense focus on discipleship and cultivation of men, women, and children, um, perhaps they could look look my wife and me up on our website, www.salvationarmymemphis.org. There you go. And click the tab that says Our Leaders, and, uh, you know, you'll, you'll see a picture of my, my wife and uh, my boys. Um, they're they're at the, uh, on the website. Wonderful. Marion, thanks so much for being with us. It's really been a gift to us. Thank you for your time. God bless you. Always. The Lord bless you, brother. I'm so thankful for that extended time that I had with Major Dr. Marion Platt and thankful for the way that he gave some very clear ways that organizations can respond to issues of racism and how we can combat that. And I'm just thankful for the very like even way that that's presented. I hope that people can hear the deliberation that he's given in the, in the research that's been a part of that. I encourage you just to find that paper that's available online. I think that that will be a, a healthy conversation starter for us as we just think about responses. So again, my thanks to Marion there for his thoughtful leadership here uh, within the broader culture of the Salvation Army. But I think those of you outside the Army will benefit too from the way that speaking, the Marion is speaking into our lives and to our organizations. Next week on the podcast, we have Jillian Penhale, Executive Director of Created. If you'd like to learn more about us, please feel free to check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at Sal Army Tampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next time.